Myra Maybell Shirley was born just outside of Carthage, Missouri in 1848. Her parents did all they could to raise her to be a lady, sending her to Carthage Female Academy where she was taught basic education, proper etiquette, music, and she also excelled in classical languages, the grooming every young woman needed to find a suitable husband to care for her. She always dressed in the finest clothing made from the most expensive bolts and adorned her hats with large ostrich plumes just to make sure that she was noticed. The issue was that Myra Bell also enjoyed the outdoors, horses, a bit of gunplay, and her opinions were rarely kept to herself. Little did the Shirleys know that their little girl would grow up to be not only elegant, intelligent, and clever, but also for all time known as the most ruthless female outlaw, setting new rules for the life at the expansion of to the West. The dime novels boasted her scandalous crimes, unforgiving codes of banditry, and ruthless adventures. She became known as the leader of sorts to the horse-thieving, robbing gangs including famous outlaws such as the Youngers, the James Brothers, the Dalton Gang, and many more, and fueling the flames between the lifelong feud of the Bandit and the Hanging Judge, Isaac Parker. Belle Starr, the Bandit Queen, the most notorious outlaw who was guilty of maybe 10% of those crimes. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Welcome to Bag of Bones. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bougeret. On a personal note, Bell Star was my favorite outlaw. I'm sure it's no surprise that in my childhood and youth, I leaned a bit toward the villain of every story. I followed all the outlaws of the Old West, was fascinated with the early mob stories, I studied the serial killers and people who chose the wrong side of the law and wondered just what makes them tick. Even though it's not in my DNA to follow suit, my curiosity began at a very young age and hasn't dwindled since. I believe I admired Belle Star for being a woman who held her own among her male counterparts. She was the brains behind the operation and still managed to maintain a sense of elegance and wit about her. She didn't settle and she played by her own rules, was respected, admired, and more than a little feared. Little did I know that my research would discover that she was not necessarily the larger-than-life bandit queen, as my hours and hours of youthful entertainment in reading would have led me to believe, but was more of a regular young woman looking for adventure with a propensity to fall in love with the bad boys. Was I disappointed with my findings? I have to admit at first I was. The stories and newspaper headlines boasted a larger-than-life character, but then I was able to see her as a real person with a real story and found hers no less fascinating. Which begs the question, does the press make the person or does the person make the press? As I mentioned, Belle, as she preferred to be called growing up, 
She grew up in the divided state of Missouri on the precipice of the Civil War. Her father, John Shirley, had purchased almost a full city block when he moved their family to the heart of Carthage in 1856. His property included an inn with a tavern, a livery stable, and a blacksmith shop, and also horse corrals. Their inn, tavern, and home were a popular stop to friends and guests thanks to John's home library and his wife Eliza's talent on the piano and her most gracious manners. It was their intent for the skills of the upper class be passed on to their one and only daughter, Belle. She was well-educated, skilled in music, dance, and elocution. She was often seen playing the piano and singing at local parties, church services, and at her father's tavern. But with five brothers averting her attention elsewhere, along with questionable visitors that blurred the lines of the law, it was a slippery slope. Her oldest brother, Bud, taught her to ride horses, and her father taught her all about breeding, care, raising, and trading horses as it was part of his business, and they both found an avid student. Belle excelled in the skills of breeding and marketing of fine horses, as well as racing horses, as easily as she played the piano and sang to the guests at the inn. It was a charmed life for a young lady that was used to being the crowd, rowdy, outspoken men. She could either fit right in or put them in their place if she so desired. At the age of 16, she was on track to be the Queen of Carthage with influence, money, and confidence. But things changed when the Civil War knocked on their door. Her family was a firm believer of the Confederate stance and they often held meetings and provided a resting place for soldiers and other Confederate supporters. Bell would be present at the meetings and hear the political views and charged dissertations about how the state of Missouri should form their own army to push back. And they did. The Union and Confederate armies both ravaged their way through the area, and the angry, inconsolable young male population spearheaded several gangs to rise up and go outside the rules of warfare. Deserters and Confederate patriots alike would use guerrilla tactics to ambush the Union camps and patrols. They would terrorize towns and the citizens sympathizing with the Union cause. Her oldest brother, Bud, would join one of these groups. William C. Quantrill, and I am in no way trying to romanticize his actions, as he was considered one of the most ruthless and bloodthirsty of all the gangs to come from this Civil War uprising. He was not concerned about justice or fighting for right and wrong. He was just leading a division of men that would ravage small towns, killing, pillaging, and blazing townships as they went. From 1861 until Quantrill was shot and captured in 1865, the men carried out brutal crimes against the people and towns along the Missouri and Kansas border. The brutal massacre of Lawrence, Kansas in 1863 that took the life of over 150 and left the town in smoldering ashes was attributed to Quantrill. Many of his band continued their wayward banditry in several offshoots including Bloody Bill Anderson and George Todd and the infamous James Younger Gang, whose high-profile bank and train robberies made them legendary. Spoiler, those stories are for another podcast episode. But it was Frank and Jesse James and the Younger brothers, including Cole Younger, that sparked the attention of young Belle. The war may have been going on around her, but she was just 16 and smitten with the adventurous stories 
that the James and the Youngers passed along when they would stop in for a visit were more than enough to set Bell on a new path. In 1864, the stories hit much closer to home when it wasn't just others that were affected, but the Shirleys themselves. Oldest son Bud was shot and killed for being one of Quantrill's raiders, which he was, so be careful who your friends are. But the civil unrest had already ruined the Shirley's businesses and crops. His horses were stolen, his valuables, his properties were damaged, and now the death of his firstborn. He sold his Missouri holdings, loaded up his family, and moved to Texas. Hello listeners, I'm Katie. And I'm Amber. And we are two hosts on Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals, or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Times in Texas were hard at first, but John raised corn and sorghum crops. He bred and sold horses, milk cows, and hogs. It wasn't long before the Shirley family were back to their standard of living. The Shirleys reverted back to their old ways of allowing outlaws and bandits respite under their roof. And it was during this period when the Jesse James gang paid the family a visit that Belle fell in love with outlaw Jim Reed. The two had most likely met while in Missouri, but when Belle moved to Texas and Reed was making a name for himself as an outlaw, they had little opportunity to see each other. It wasn't until the James Younger gang that Reed was a part of escaped to Texas to lay low after robbing the bank in Liberty, Missouri. The story goes that Jim stole her away in the night only 24 hours after they arrived and they were married on horseback on November 1st, 1866 in Cowan County. Her father was incensed. It was one thing to commiserate with the outlaws. It was an entirely different story to marry off your one and only daughter to one. No one really knows why she ran off so quickly to get married, and there are rumors abound, which I won't bore you with, but maybe she was just an 18-year-old girl looking for adventure and wanted to experience the stories she'd been hearing about her whole life. We tend to do some pretty crazy things when we're 18, with our whole life ahead of us. Whatever the reasons, her parents would have none of it. They went after her and literally locked her away at her brother's ranch and refused to acknowledge the marriage. They threatened Jim to never see her again, but again, at that beautiful, wonderful age where anything is possible, Jim found her and rescued her, stealing her back once again, taking her back to his family's home in Rich Hill, Missouri. In 1868, their first child was born, Rose Pearl. Jim Reed had become a wanted man now with a price on his head, so when Belle's father pleaded once more for her to return to Texas so he could protect her and the child, she reluctantly went along. While back in Texas, Belle herself became restless and often frequented the neighboring boomtown of Dallas. She would play piano and sing in the taverns there, spinning stories and mingling with the town folk and local businessmen, wheeling and dealing like she'd seen her father do many evenings in her youth. 
she eventually worked out financing to open her own livery stable in Dallas. With her knowledge of fine horses and breeding from her father, and having a horse-thieving husband, her business was quite lucrative. It was a ten-mile ride to and from, and it's believed at this time period when she developed her signature look. Always a lady that dressed in the latest luxury fashions, she made sure everyone knew she came from money. Long velvet gowns, elegantly trimmed riding habit, and plumed hat. She rode side saddle, and two pearl-handled pistols around her waist for protection. She was quite a sight. In August of 1870, Jim Reed murdered two men as a revenge killing of his older brother. He saw the two men at a general store and killed them both on sight. This put a high price on his head and he became a wanted man with hundreds of lawmen seeking the reward for him, dead or alive. Jim, looking for safety for his family and, as some would tell it, a new life, sent his wife and child to California by stagecoach, promising to meet them in Los Angeles. In 1871, the Reeds had a second child, a boy. Belle named him Edwin after her younger brother, who died, was killed, at the age of 20, only a year prior. This time, according to the letters she had written to Reed's brother, were some of the happiest. They were making plans to buy more land and start an orchard. They had already bought a few parcels near the San Gabriel River and were trying to woo the family to join them there. But unfortunately, their time was cut short when Reed was recognized and they were on the run once again. Belle and the two children returned to Dallas and she picked up where she had left off with her horse dealings. She would sneak off to Indian Territory to see her husband and this is where she met Tom Starr, father of Sam Starr. They were Cherokee leaders and were well-known horse thieves. In my book, if you're a horse thief and you're well-known, it doesn't sound like you're doing a very good job of it. Maybe that's just me. After one of their robberies, where the take-home was over $30,000 in gold, and this wasn't a sneaky robbery, they, they straight up choked the people out, forcing them to give up the gold, which they did, but of course then they could finger the three men who did it. I mean, robbery 101, don't get caught. Needless to say, Belle soon had a corral full of top-rated racing horses, not too long after. August 6th, 1874. Jim Reed's bounty had gone up to over $5,000. On this particular night, he was riding back to Indian Territory to a hideout along with a friend by the name of John Morris. They stopped at a home in Paris, Texas to rest for the night. While Jim Reed was without his pistols, Morris shot and killed him. Reed's body was taken to McKinney, Texas, so Morris could collect the reward money. But at this time, before the bounty was given, the body had to be identified. So the authorities called Bell to give a positive ID. When Bell arrived at McKinney, they took her to see the deceased. She took one look at the body and then looked at the authorities and said, quote, If you want the reward for Jim Reed, you will have to kill Jim Reed. This is not my husband. End quote. So the good news is that Morris was not able to claim the reward money. The bad news is, is that Belle was not able to take her husband's body home to be buried with the family, and it was buried in a potter's field in an unmarked grave. Coincidentally, John Morris was mysteriously killed only a few months later.
Many of the Bandit Queen's stories involve her helping her husband commit some of his more famous crimes, but that just didn't happen. Yes, there is documented proof that she served as a spy during the Civil War for the South and passed along the secrets of wheres and whens, but for the most part, these days, she was busy at home tending to her horses. She was, however, the wife of one of the most wanted men in the 1870s. The town was growing uncomfortable with her presence, and in unison applied pressure to have her move on. Not only her, but her family as well. Her father was arrested without reason, and the family was harassed regularly. In retaliation, Bell would write scathing letters threatening to burn down houses. Well, in 1875, a general store did burn down, and, of course, Bell was indicted for arson. That was April. Then in August, she was charged with theft of some geldings, and this got her some jail time. But finally, in June of 1876, Bell stood trial for both the arson and the theft charges. She pled not guilty, and the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. She gave up and decided to take her family to Missouri so the children could stay with their paternal grandmother, and Bell went to Kansas. She was headed to the races. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. I love this story. It's not one of the ones that made her a, the cool outlaw I thought she was when I was younger, but it showed her cleverness and wit. Okay, sorry. Back to the story. Belle was already known for her well-bred horses in Kansas. She spent a lot of time breeding racing horses and even racing them herself from time to time. Finally, she had a winner. It was getting more and more attention by taking all the trophies. John Hargrove was a wealthy businessman from Arkansas. 
He and partner Zeke Proctor had a winning horse of their own, said it never lost a race. Bell went over to Salem Springs, Arkansas, and challenged Hargrove to a race. They put a $1,000 wager on it. When it came time for the race, Bell told her jockey to let Hargrove win, not by much, but win nonetheless. By Hargrove winning the race, his horse became even more valuable. A few weeks later, Bell approached Hargrove again for a rematch, upping the stakes to $5,000 and ownership of the loser's horse. The crowds gathered from everywhere to watch the rematch. Wages were made, Hargrove with Bell plus a few on the side, and he also insisted his partner Proctor play some bets as well. Of course, this time, Bell instructed her jockey to run full speed, win the race. Her horse won by a landslide. Hargrove and Proctor lost their money, his horse, their pride, and bankrupt their horse livery stable. During the stage of her avid horse racing days, Bell was to cross paths once again with the Younger family. This time it was the cousin to Cole Younger and his gang, Bruce. He was following in the family business of horse thievery and outlaw stuff. Bell was smitten and the two carried on and were seen together all over town. When he would win big on his card games, he would spoil her with gifts. They were at the racetracks and were very much together. They had even gotten rooms in the same hotel. Now, in the 1880s, this was enough to damage a woman's reputation which Bell held in high regard despite stories heard elsewhere. This story goes that Bruce had grown tired of their relationship and packed up to leave town. Bell was incensed. He had given her every indication that they were going to be married, and after all that happened, if they weren't, she would be ruined. We're going to ignore all the other facts that her choices were less than ladylike, so just work with me here. This is the bandit queen we're talking about. Bell went to the licensing office and got a marriage license, grabbed a minister, and caught up to Bruce, where, at gunpoint, in front of 20 witnesses, the two were married on May 15, 1880. She returned the minister and then rode off to Oklahoma, in the opposite direction of Bruce Younger. Three weeks later, Bell is making a home on a piece of property along the bend at the Canadian River about 50 miles from Fort Smith, Arkansas, in Indian Territory in Oklahoma. And although she called her new homestead Younger's Bend, she would actually never see Bruce again. Interestingly enough, he would be found dead, mummified in a New Mexico cave. No one knows when or how he died. But by June of 1880, Bell marries Sam Starr, the Cherokee Indian outlaw. Sam Starr, who we mentioned, was the son of famous outlaw Tom Starr that molded and shielded her first husband, Jim Reed, during his outlaw days. After setting up her cabin at Younger's Bend, she returned to Rich Hill, Missouri, to bring her children home. Bell was happy to have a family once again, and as history has a way of repeating itself, Bell's new home was soon the resting place for people on the wrong side of the law, having the nickname the Outlaw's Den. While it's documented that one of the last places noted outlaw Jesse James visited before his death in 1882 was Younger's Bend, 
Bellstar tried to get away from the spotlight and enjoy the quiet, secluded space she and Sam carved out for themselves. She would write, On the Canadian River, I hope to pass the remainder of my life in peace. For a short time I lived very happily with my little girl and husband, but it became noised about that I was a woman of notoriety from Texas, and from that time on my home and actions have been severely criticized. My home became famous as an outlaw ranch long before I was visited by any of the boys who were friends of mine. End quote. While Belle Starr was making a name for herself with neighbors and, of course, the outlaws, it was also during the same time that Judge Isaac C. Parker was trying to clean up the borders of Indian Territory by putting a stop to the whiskey rings and stagecoach bandits, horse and cattle thieves that were ravaging the territory. He had a firm hand and dealt with criminals to the letter of the law. He was known to instruct a jury, quote, permit no innocent man to be punished, but let no guilty man escape, end quote. He became known as the hanging judge, not because he was fond of killing people off, but he was committed to his appointment, which was given to him by U.S. Grant. Quote, in the uncertainty of punishment following a crime, he would declare, lies the weakness of our halting justice, end quote. The judge before him, William Story, had become corrupt, and the territory bandits and the other outlaws ran amok. Thus began the relationship of Bell Starr and the hanging judge. Not a romantic one, but more of a political one, and one of mutual respect and admiration. It's not well known that Bell Starr would find herself more than once in Judge Parker's courtroom, she wasn't the defendant, but she was actually there to fight for the rights of the Indian defendants. She would accuse the court of prejudice against the Indian people, arresting them just because they were Indian. She would help pay the expensive legal fees to help defend poor Indian criminals. For example, one of the most famous portraits of Bell Star is with Blue Duck, an Indian outlaw on trial for murder. She tried to assist the man in his trial, and his lawyer thought that a portrait with Bell Starr, who claimed he was an upstanding citizen, might help his case. I honestly don't know the outcome of that case, but that portrait alone has fired up every kind of rumor that you can think of. She was well known in the town, much the same way she was recognized in Dallas. Her fine dresses, perfect posture, riding side saddle, and her two pearl-handled guns around her waist. The newspapers created a bell star that was larger than life. The bandit queen, leader of the star gang. She heard all the stories, read all the headlines, but she just rode through the town and didn't say a word to correct them, letting folks believe what they wanted. Except once. She only gave one interview and believed that the reporter was honest and would tell her side of the story. But in fact, he blew her legend up even bigger. She happened to see him at one of her court hearings and, if you can believe what you read, grabbed him by the scruff of his neck, pulled him from his bench seat, and beat him with her riding cane, then calmly stepped over him and went about her business. In 1883, Belle Starr and her husband were indicted for horse theft. The story goes that they were purchasing horses from neighbors John West and Frank West and ended up taking two additional horses. West went to the courthouse and reported the theft, 
and the marshals, practically giddy with excitement, set up a sting to catch the notorious bandit queen and her outlaw husband. They hid in the woods, apprehended Sam, and waited for Belle to see him tied to a tree, and when she approached, they grabbed her too. Again, the story goes that she was the most unwilling prisoner. She fought and kicked, bit and scratched, threw everything out of the wagon that was used to take her the 50 miles or so to the courthouse, and when they finally had to bind her hands in chains, she realized her state. She would later write a letter referring to that time, saying, quote, Never again will I be placed in such humiliating circumstances, end quote. The crowds gathered, and the papers printed up every variation of the story from fact to completely made up. One paper wrote, quote, The very idea of a woman being charged with an offense of this kind, and that she was the leader of a band of horse thieves and wielding power over them as their queen and guiding spirit, was sufficient to fill the courtroom with spectators, end quote. There she faced off with Judge Parker, this time being forced to sit quiet while the courts mocked her husband and painted her a thief. Sam Starr was only given a year, two six-month sentences to be served back-to-back, a most lenient sentence. The true story was that there was a missing person, a Russell Childs, who testified that he was working for the Stars and accidentally included the two horses and would gladly give them back, which is an interesting point. At no time were the stars ever approached to settle the matter amicably prior to their arrest, or so the rumors go. Side note, soon after the court and the sentencing, Childs disappeared with a number of horses from the stars ranch. Once a horse thief, always a horse thief. The bandit queen and the Indian outlaw were headed upstream to the Huskow in Detroit, Michigan. Belle Starr, being a model prisoner, ended up helping tutor the other inmates with basic education, and the warden was so taken with her that she tutored his own children, teaching them French and music. Both were released on good behavior after only nine months. It would seem that a quiet life along the bend of a mighty river was just not in the cards for Belle Starr. In fact, simply because of her reputation created by the media, she was destined to live out the rest of her life as an outlaw herself. She found herself embroiled in a case of John Middleton, who came to Younger's Bend to hide out after killing the sheriff of Lamar County, Texas. By this time, John West, from earlier in our story, had become an officer of the law, which only made the low-boiling feud of the Wests and the Stars even worse. The story of the version is that they needed to get Middleton away from Younger's Bend. A plan was hatched that they would smuggle him out in a covered wagon on one of Belle and her daughter Pearl's many trips to visit family and friends. The plan was working until Pearl and Middleton got into a huge fight and she refused to let him borrow her horse and wanted him to leave their presence immediately. Belle bought a horse and arranged for it to be brought to Middleton from a farmer that was close by. She left him with Pearl's expensive saddle and one of her own pistols with her name engraved on the handle and sent him on his way, leaving instructions where Sam could later pick up the saddle and the gun. Thinking they were free of the man and all would be done, they were sadly mistaken. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that Ragtag Network has its own merch? 
You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com now to check things out. The horse that was brought to John Middleton was a one-eyed, worn-down, unshod mare that was stolen. Which, by now, who cares, right? He's on his own. But Jim Middleton ends up dead because he fell off the mare and got caught up in an undercurrent and died. I'm, I'm sorry, that's not funny, I didn't mean to laugh. The stolen horse with pearl saddle and Bell's gun was found near the washed-up body. And who was on the scene? John West. He set out to question Bell, which might have been fine if he limited it to questions. Instead, he tried to break a lock on one of her trunks and found the double barrel of a shotgun pressed against the side of his head. The questioning has ended, but the trouble only got worse. Around the same time all of this was happening, a stagecoach was robbed by three masked men. Sam Starr was accused of being one of the bandits, even though no evidence could place him there. But a warrant went out for his arrest. And then another small, petty burglary happened in the home of Wils Farrell. And even though none of the men could be identified, suspicions fell on Sam Starr. Belle encouraged her husband to give himself up, knowing that the charges were all hearsay, but Sam instead chose to avoid capture. So John West knew the one thing that would draw out Sam Starr. Arrest his wife. West filed a complaint with the courts insisting that Belle was the mastermind of the feral burglary, the, the one that only yielded $40. He went to bring her in, expecting more resistance, but she went with him, riding beside him the entire trip to Fort Smith, but didn't pass up the opportunity to mock West along the entire trip for the way he had brought out six men fully armed, and had them crawl on their hands and knees through the brush to try and sneak up to capture her. Judge Parker listened to a few of the prosecution's witnesses, but declined calling Bell's defense witnesses, who were all there to testify that she and Sam had been at a dance on the night of the robbery. Judge Parker dismissed the whole case, saying it was ridiculous and not worth the court's time. Meanwhile, Frank West and another deputy managed to trap Sam Starr in a cornfield, just as they had hoped. But instead of following protocol, Frank fired at the unsuspecting Starr. A bullet grazed his head, one hit him in the side, and the third killed the horse that he was riding. The horse reeled backward and threw Sam to the ground. But before they could capture and bind Sam Starr, he escaped through the tall corn and into the bush. By the way, the other trial Bell was involved in about the stolen one-eyed horse, it ended in acquittal. She was able to leave Fort Smith and return to her husband, nursing him back to health while he was hidden at one of his brother's homes. She begged him to turn himself into the U.S. Marshal instead of waiting for the Choctaw Law to find him and kill him. He did, and once bail was set and paid, Sam Starr was free to go, pending trial. He was now protected by the U.S. government to stand a fair trial. So, he and Bell decided to stay in Fort Smith and attend an annual fair in western Arkansas. Bell was invited to participate in the festivities by performing a stagecoach robbery for all to see, and one of the passengers getting robbed? None other than Judge Isaac Parker himself. 
another testament to the friendship that the two shared, very much the opposite to the stories of their ongoing rivalry. Belle performed several stunts from horseback showing off her riding skills and marksmanship for the crowds clamoring to watch a glimpse of the notorious Belle star. The stars, still high on the fun from the festivities, decided to accept an invitation to a Christmas party at the Surratt family home. We are at December 17, 1886, after a really hectic year. The witnesses have said that the party was dull and listless until Bellstar arrived and joined the lone fiddle player in some upbeat reels. The party exploded with dancing and laughter. Unbeknownst to the stars, Frank West showed up to the party and was outside around the fire warming his hands. Everyone knew that bad things would happen if Sam and Frank would meet. So while well-meaning friends were begging Frank to get back on his horse and leave, Others were inside warning Sam not to go outside. Well, that didn't work. Sam jumped from the stool he was sitting on beside where his wife was playing the organ and headed straight outside. Words were thrown back and forth across the yard while a young 12-year-old Dan Folsom was encouraged to leave the area. Suddenly, Sam Starr reached for his gun and fired. The bullet hit Frank West and he started to fall, but he got off a shot of his own. The bullet pierced Sam's body, traveled through it, and grazed young Folsom's cheek. Both Sam Starr and Frank West were dead. While Belle Starr was mourning the loss of her husband, she had another problem, an immediate problem. With Sam's death, she lost her citizenship to the Indian nation and would lose her claim to Younger's Bend. Unless, before the end of the year, Belle Starr had convinced Jim July, another adopted son of Tom Starr, to move in with her and tell the council that they were married. That was all that was required for Belle to be allowed to stay. July was barely older than her children, but he served his purpose, and the marriage served July well too. He had a home, property, and having Belle Starr as a wife brought him some notoriety, which... <laughs> he apparently mistook for being able to be the worst bumbling drunken outlaw. She threatened this new husband that she was finished in the outlaw business and that if he got into any scrapes, he was on his own. She would not help him with any lawyers or any fees. Belle Starr had made many enemies along the way. In her hard life, she managed to estrange both of her children, who each had their own reasons to hate her. She had John West, still a neighbor, but forced to never harass her again since the death between her husband and his brother. She had angry neighbors who did not appreciate being rebuffed by her matter-of-fact tone and never backing down from a fight of any kind. In February of 1889, things seemed to quiet down around Younger's Bend. Her husband, July, had to ride to Fort Smith to face new horse theft charges, so Belle decided to ride along part of the way. They stopped for the night at a friend's house, and in the morning they went their separate ways. He toward Arkansas, she back home by the way of the local store and a friend's house. Today found Belle nostalgic, almost melancholy. Her 41st birthday was only a few days away, and she shared thoughts of demise in her near future that she was sure that one of her enemies would be round to kill her. Belle removed a silk scarf wrapped around her neck and cut it in half and gave one of the pieces to her friend to remember her by. 
She left one friend's house and continued on her Sunday visits as she often did, deciding to stop at the home where her son had been staying to attempt, they say, to smooth things over with him. He was not there, but Belle stayed and visited for a while, and when she left, she was sent on her way with some fresh-made cornbread, which was her favorite. She headed toward home at a leisurely pace. It had been raining the days prior, so she had to be more cautious to avoid the muddy potholes in the road. The sun was just beginning its descent in the sky, and as she rounded the bend, a shot rang out, breaking the tranquil silence. Belle's star was thrown from her horse by a shotgun blast aimed at her back at close range. The horse bolted away from her, and her assailant came from their hiding place to deliver one more shot. Standing over her, another shot was fired to the side of her face. Belle lay bleeding to death on the muddy road. The murderer crept away in the stillness of twilight and disappeared. Bellstar's murder was never found and is still considered a mystery today, and conspiracy theories still swirl around the subject. But her legend lived on as the brass and body leader of gangs, sharpshooter and bandit extraordinaire, but those who knew her in her later years mention a different sort of woman. Frank Sutton from the Dallas Morning News printed, quote, They knew her to be a steady friend, always faithful to her man. They even had a sort of sympathy for her, for she was human to the heart, and in this scarcely settled region where she lived, no one was more generous to the sick and unfortunate. She never refused food or shelter to anyone who asked it, and when the women of the neighborhood were sick and unable to care for their folks, Belle always dropped everything and took care of them until they died or got well." End quote. In my research, at times it became difficult to filter through the fact from the fiction, but I feel I got pretty close. Some of her stories are pretty entertaining, and as far as dime store novels and the best-known female outlaw, and if you're interested, Many can still be found thanks to the internet, but going back and forth from documents, letters, and stories, I think we found a pretty fair glimpse into the life and times of legendary Belle Star, the Bandit Queen. And yes, she's still my favorite Old West outlaw. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and will join me again here next week. And if you are liking what Bag of Bones is creating, please let me know by leaving a rating or a review. Or if there's a subject that you're curious about, let me know. You can find me at the Bag of Bones social media pages on both Facebook and Instagram or at my website, elizabethbougeret.com. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret with research by Anna Krunkeberg. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed.
To learn more about the show, visit elizabethboucheret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.